Red Glass, Chapter 7, Escaping Death. The first time, Angel said, I was picking coffee beans. I was about four years old. To get to the finca, our family had to walk for hours. It belonged to a rich family. They paid us to pick the coffee and gave us a room to stay in for a few weeks. The plants were on steep mountainsides with loose rocks, really sharp. We each had ropes tied around our waists in case we fell. The year before, a girl fell and died, fell into the river, hit her head, and drowned. We had to be careful. That's why we had the ropes. And we each carried a basket. So there I am, filling the basket. It's half full of berries when I slip. I wait for the rope to stop me, but I'm so little it slides right off. I keep falling, rolling down the mountain, rocks banging me, coffee plants grabbing at me. While I fall, I think things. I wonder how it will feel to fall straight, straight down through the air. How will it feel when I smack the water? How will it feel to breathe in the river? Suddenly, I'm lying still by a pile of giant rocks. I remember seeing candles lit there on a stone altar. I remember feeling the moss soft beneath me. No more bright sunshine, just cool shadows. I'm in heaven, I decide. And in the tallest candle flame, there's a dancing woman in white. Lover Hin, I think at first. But then she turns into my mother. Then my great-grandmother, who died, and my great-aunt, who died. She's made of light, glowing. Then she grows and grows until she's so big she has one foot on either side of the mountain. Next thing I know, my mother, my real mother in the flesh, is kneeling over me, her hands holding my face, her lips all over my head. She presses her head to my chest and hears my heartbeat, moves her cheek near my mouth feels my breath. She rips off her shirt and tears it to pieces, one strip around my arm, another around my leg, another around my forehead. The white strips turn red with my blood. I feel a little embarrassed that I see her breasts. She's come first, and then the others come. I don't know how she's made it down here so fast. My father gets there and covers her with his shirt, carries me along a path back to the hut. Later, I ask my mother, how did you find me before the others? She says, hijo, I saw a light over that spot where you were, a light that grew bigger and bigger. You know, for a while after that, I asked myself, why was my mother glowing along with my great-grandmother and great-aunt when she wasn't dead? We camped again the second night. The next morning on the road again, Angel leaned over to check on his carved box, which he kept under the seat and checked at least once an hour. I wanted to ask more about the box. Would he clam up if I mentioned it? I mustered up the breeziest voice I could. Um, Angel? So there's probably something important inside that box, huh? He nodded, but said nothing. Pablo started in. Is animal? Is lizard? Is chicken? 
and on and on until Angel cracked a smile. Then Mr. Lorenzo and Dika joined in. Uh, hair gel? Drugs? Gold? Dirty magazines? Angel laughed, but he didn't let Pablo shake the box no matter how much he pleaded. I loved listening to this silly banter with Pablo because he seemed, for once, like a normal little boy. This was what we'd been trying to get him to do for the whole past year. Normal little boy stuff, stuff that could even be obnoxious at times. Me and Juan would be amazed, Mom and Juan would be amazed when we got back. For the rest of the day, Pablo occasionally piped up with a, You'll say, you'll say, is a million dollars? Is million million dollar? That afternoon, Pablo dozed while the road climbed uphill through rugged mountains spotted with giant agave plants that were taller than me, their wavy leaves like jellyfish tentacles. Wet green leaves and tropical flowers filled the valley, looking mysterious through patches of fog. Angel whispered to me, Will Pablo come back to Tucson for vacations ever? He'll decide to live with us, my voice sounded defensive. I'm sure of it. And he'll go to his village on vacations. Um, what if he wants to stay with his relatives? Well, then he can. But look at him. He's like a normal American kid now. But this is his land, Angel said, his tierra. You left your tierra to come to the U.S.? I didn't want to. He had papers, I knew, papers that made him and Mr. Lorenzo legal in the U.S. Dika had told me they were legal residents, just like her, since they were all three refugees fleeing violence in their countries. Dika had gotten her visa before she came, but Angel and his father came to Tucson first, illegally crossing the desert. At their court hearing, they had to prove they would be killed if they went back to Guatemala. When I asked Dika how you prove something like that, she said, They say us when they want to say us. But, Angel, you live in Tucson now, and you're there to stay, right? He didn't answer. Angel, you're at least finishing high school and going to college in the U.S., right? He shrugged. I already made my schedule for next semester. How could I miss calculus? Later, at a gas station, while Angel was filling up the tank, I asked Mr. Lorenzo if they were going to stay in Tucson. Dika pricked up her ears. Of course they stay in Tucson, she said. Of course, Mr. Lorenzo said, patting Dika's hand. He switched to Spanish. We have jobs, and Angel has school. And there is too much violence still in our town. Even now that there is no war, there are still weapons and still anger. No, we will stay in Tucson. There is nothing for us in our town. Except for your wife's jewels, I said. Yes, except for her jewels. Life is a long, long car ride. I said to Angel that evening as we wound up a mountain past shacks selling fruit and sodas and beer. We sat in the back seat with Pablo, who was wedged between us asleep. Headed where? I don't know. Death? What do you know about death? Angel looked serious. <laughs> I, I don't know, I laughed. 
I'd meant the comment as something lighthearted. I'm still in the car ride part. I didn't say anything about all the times I'd convinced myself I was on the verge of death. Well, what do you know about life then? Not much. Waiting. For what? School to end? School to start? To go to college? Get a job? To be in love, I thought? To have sex? To stop being scared? Angel peered out the window into the growing darkness where the roadside dropped off steeply, a nearly vertical fall to the valley below. I couldn't look. It made me dizzy and nervous to think that with one slip, our van could tumble over the cliff and smash at the bottom, all of us dead within seconds. When I think of life, Angel said, I think of us all hanging on by these ropes, feeling we're safe. But really, we could slip out at any time. None of our ropes are safe. That's what I realized. That coffee-picking season, my bruises and scrapes healed up, and I went back to the coffee fields. This time, my father tied the rope so tight it burned. I should have been scared, but I wasn't. I loved it more than. I loved the way the berries tasted in my mouth, kind of sweet and slimy. I loved the sound of people singing and joking around while we picked. I wouldn't have done that, I said. I wouldn't want to even look at the mountainside again. Maybe, or maybe not, maybe life would taste sweeter. Angel said he was born in the Mayan village where his mother grew up. A midwife delivered him at home, and after she cleaned and swaddled him, she told his parents, Your son will travel far and do great things. <laughs> I wish someone had said that about me. A gem of knowledge to carry around in my pocket, to hold on to when panic welled up. I would step into elevators bravely without a thought of the doors failing to open and being stuck inside for a week without food or water and dying alone. I would look people in the eye and move with confidence. That was how Angel walked and talked. He had this clear stone inside him, so solid, this prediction that he would be great. If Angel had a gym at his center, what I had inside was a sharp, rusted piece of metal like the rotting tailpipe on the ancient beat-up car Mom and I had when I was little. Whenever it broke down, she had to find someone to give us a ride <laughs> to get my aller allergy shots, which was hard when our phone was disconnected. Mom just bumbled around the neighborhood smiling, knocking on doors, asking for a ride, saying it would all work out, thanking everyone in her charming British accent. Cheers! You're brilliant! Meanwhile, I was worried so much that my stomach ached, and then she'd have to take off work and lose that day's wages, and then my stomach ached even more, as though that shard of metal were digging itself farther and farther inside me. The third night... We slept in the van again, on the side of a dirt road just off Route 15. At some point in the night, Pablo crawled into bed between me and Dika. His head nuzzled into my neck. Light streamed through the window. Moonlight, it must have been, although I couldn't see the actual moon from my angle. His small hands were tucked up under his chin. Was he anxious about going back to his village? I stroked his hair. 
It was fine, so fine, so soft. I buried my nose in it. Mi abuelita te puede curar, Sophie. Pablo's voice was thin and small, like a newly planted seedling. I opened my eyes and looked at him. What? Your grandmother can cure me? See? He looked at me. His eyes looked very old for a six-year-old's, enough to make you believe in reincarnation. He could have been a wise old monk in a past life. I spoke to him in Spanish. De verdad? Really? Cure me of what? My allergies? My fears? My curse? He nodded. Todo. He would... He wound a strand of my hair around his finger, rubbed it against his cheek. That would be nice, Principito. Someone shifted in the bunk over us. Maybe Angel was awake, too. I pictured him curled around his locked box, smoothing the wood the way a child smooths the satin edge of a blanket. I considered giving him a sign, clearing my throat, coughing, lightly whistling, but then I flushed at the thought forced myself to close my eyes, and made my breathing match Pablo's. Eventually, I slept. Red Glass by Laura Rousseau Chapter 8 Picnic with a Cop The next afternoon, on the fourth day, a huge storm left the sky streaked with orange and yellow, the clouds glowing like gates to heaven. Angel was driving, speeding along, winding around hills, past a huge lake and cornfields. It was probably hard to resist speeding, since there were no cars or houses or people on this stretch, and we had only one day of driving left. Suddenly, red and blue flashing lights appeared behind us. Cops. My stomach jumped. Juan had said cops here were corrupt. They would threaten to arrest you, take your license, demand hundreds of dollars to get it back. Never get into a car with a cop, he'd said. You don't know where they might take you, what they might do. Mom had told us a dozen times, don't speed. Promise me you won't speed. I remembered Angel's box. Chances were whatever he had inside was either valuable or illegal. Either way, we'd be in trouble if the cop found it. I leaned over between the front seats to check if it was hidden, but Angel was already moving his feet against the bottom edge of his seat, making sure the box was safely stashed. He looked terrified. I imagined us rotting in a dungeon cell with only amoeba-infested water to drink and no limes to squeeze over unsanitarily prepared morsels of food. My head felt hot and prickly. This is it. I'm going to die. This time, I'm really going to die. Either I'll die in prison or I'll just pass out right now and never regain consciousness. And we're probably hours from a hospital, and even if we make it to a hospital, it would probably be unhygienic. Oh, God, this is it. Dika patted Angel's knee. Don't worry, Angel. 
it is okay. In the side mirrors, we watched the cop swagger toward us, one slow step at a time. He looked around over the fields as he walked and saw what we saw, that this place was deserted except for a few falling down shacks in the distance. Finally, his head appeared at the driver's side window. He was a young cop with baby smooth skin, not much older than me and Angel. Before he could say anything, Dika leaned across Angel, smushing her giant bosom in his lap and began talking loudly in Spanish. Oh, mijo, you're just in time for our picnic. We're, we're having roasted chicken and tortillas and fruitcake. Come join us. Watch the beautiful sky with us and share our food. Before he could answer, she flung open the side door, climbed down, clutching a bag of food, and spread a blanket in a dusty clearing next to the road. Son, uh, go turn off those lights and come have a picnic. You, you must be hungry. He obeyed. Maybe he had a bossy mother who trained him well, or maybe he was bored. Uh, you are too kind, senora, he said when he returned. He stood by the blanket, grinning. Meanwhile, the rest of us climbed out of the van, keeping our mouths shut. Mr. Lorenzo was dripping with sweat. Angel left the box under the seat. Outside, he positioned himself so that he could keep a close eye on the van. I clutched Pablo's hand and whispered, It'll be okay, Principito. Uh, more to calm myself than Pablo, who was just watching everything curiously. Sit down, Dika commanded. Sophie, Angel, sit down and eat. Pablito, you look like the drumsticks best, don't you? Now, what about you, son? What's your name? Jorge. Jorge, what would you like? A thigh? She slapped her thigh. A breast? She gave a body laugh. I flushed. Embarrassed, he said, Anything is fine, senora. Dika dug her fingers into the chicken and tore out a chunk of breast meat. She arranged it in a tortilla, sliced open an avocado, scooped out green flesh with her slimy chicken hands. Then she cut up a tomato, threw in a few slices, and handed the taco to the cop. And here's salsa, mi amor. Use as much as you like. She made tacos for the rest of us and handed them out. My panic subsided and my hand stopped shaking enough to drench my chicken with lime. Um, uh, would you squeeze some of that on mine, please, senorita? The cop asked me. I leaned over and squeezed some on his chicken. You like lime, eh? I nodded and smiled, embarrassed. I waited for Angel to make a lime girl comment, but he kept his eyes cast down on his food. Once in a while, he glanced at the van where his box sat hidden in the shadows under the seat. Look at that sky, Jorge, Dika said. What a good job you have driving around all the time. What, what a beautiful land you live in. Jorge relaxed after a warm corona. He grew talkative and told us about his childhood. He'd grown up in the town where we'd bought the chicken. 
He felt it was a good omen that we'd stopped at Pollo Crispy because his parents owned the place. Plus, he was hungry since he'd skipped lunch. He was covering the shift of a sick cop. Our picnic invitation was a, a miracle, he said. He reclined on his elbows, working on his second beer. He stared at me. I felt conscious of the way I was chewing the chicken. What's your name? he asked. Sophie, I said. He didn't ask anyone else's name. Look, Sophie, do you see the form of Lavergen in the sky? Do you see it? Um, sort of, I said. I had no idea what he was talking about. Oh, 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 there it is, I lied. I didn't want to disappoint him. When you're used to guys ignoring you, and suddenly someone, an older guy, in a uniform at that, is flirting with you, it's hard not to go along. I, I see it, I see it, Dika shouted. There she is, in that cloud. I should thank her for giving me the opportunity to meet you. He used the singular, informal form of you to meet me, just me. What color are your eyes, Sophie? I shrugged. Gray? They're blue, Dika said. Blue! She wanted to get in the conversation. Here, have some fruitcake. I can see the light coming through the sides, he whispered, like glass marbles. I blushed. Jasmine might have called him a slime ball, but she was used to guys hitting on her. She had that luxury. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Dika smile mischievously. The plan was working out even better than expected. I snuck a look at Angel. His sunglasses hid his eyes, so it was hard to read his face. His fingers, though, were nervous, rubbing the pendants around his neck, bringing them up to his lips. Mr. Lorenzo was sweating like crazy, mopping his forehead with a faded red handkerchief. The thick flannel shirt wasn't helping. Let me see, Pablo said, coming closer to me, examining my eyes from all angles. The cop ruffled Pablo's hair and drained the last few drops of his second beer. I have to go now, but on your way back, you are welcome to stay at my house. Do you have a pin, Sophie? I went to the van and pulled out a pen and paper from the glove compartment, conscious of his eyes on my back as I walked, as I bent over to reach inside the window. He came over to the van and stood next to me, so close his flowery cologne made my nose itch. Here. I handed him the pen and paper. He wrote his name and number in curly script, then folded the paper carefully and handed it to me. He stepped even closer and looked pointedly into my eyes. Call me. I gave a smile as if we shared a secret, the kind of smile I'd seen girls give to guys in the hallways, saying goodbye before the bell rang and the next class started, the kind of tilting my head down but my eyes up. The soppy way he looked back at me made it clear that the last thing on his mind was throwing us in jail. He shook hands with everyone. Angel and Mr. Lorenzo kept their eyes down and forced polite smiles. And then the cop drove off in a cloud of dust. 
Well, Dika said, stuffing a piece of fruit cake into her mouth. No ticket? Impresionante, Mr. Lorenzo said. He smiled and wiped off the last remnants of sweat with his handkerchief. Muy impresionante, señoritas. I laughed. It was impressive and kind of fun. There was something I could learn from Dika. Just when you're sure you'll end up in an unhygienic dungeon, you figure out how to turn the situation on its head. For a moment, I caught a glimpse of how life could be if the sharks turned out to be dolphins, if fear went out like the tide and confidence rushed in to fill its place. If I believed that my bony elbows actually were nice, or maybe there was a shiny stone of greatness buried somewhere inside me. Back in the van, Angel picked up his box and ran his hands over it as if relieved it hadn't grown legs and run away. He let out a long breath and slouched down in the front seat. Saved again by a woman. Two women. Chapter 8, Part 2 that evening, we all wanted showers, except for Pablo, who didn't have his bath toys, so what fun would it be? In the next town, we stopped at a motel, a low building with peeling blue paint and bars on the windows. When we opened the door, shiny cockroaches skittered across the tiles and disappeared into holes in the walls. The beds were metal, painted to look like wood grain, and covered in fuzzy, mud-colored blankets with beige peacock designs. Across from the beds stood a wardrobe of lacquered plywood that looked as if it could collapse at any moment. I volunteered to shower first while Dika and Mr. Lorenzo walked to a corner grocery store to stock up on bottled water and salty peanuts. Angel and Pablo played outside in the parking lot with a tiny, super bouncy rubber ball. The shower was tiled with cracked green porcelain and had only one faucet for cold water. A foul odor rose from the drain, probably a dead rat or a heap of cockroaches, I guessed. Luckily, I had flip-flops to wear in the shower to avoid picking up fungus. I stepped under the shower spray, my lips pressed together tightly to keep out amoebas. At first, the shock of water was so cold it made me shudder and almost jumped right out. But my urge to be clean won. With frigid fingers, I rubbed soap over my pale purple-tinned skin and shampooed and conditioned as fast as I could. After a few minutes of pain, my body got used to the cold until it actually felt kind of refreshing, like a snow cone on a hot day. I brushed my teeth with bottled water, then wondered if I should leave the toothbrush sitting out so that the bristles could dry, which would reduce the germs on one hand, but on the other hand, cockroaches might crawl over it. Then there was always the risk that Dika would pick up my toothbrush and use it on her own tartared teeth. She seemed to feel that sharing toothbrushes was as harmless as sharing hairbrushes, so I always put mine out of sight. I shook it out as best I could and then hid it in my toiletry bag. Pablo's laughs and shouts floated in through the window. A few days ago, he barely smiled, but now he couldn't contain his joy over a simple game of bouncy ball. I got dressed and called to him. Time for your shower! He ran inside, flushed and breathless from chasing the ball. 
I pulled the blue t-shirt over his head, revealing his bony shoulders, little barrel chest, slight pot belly. He climbed out of his pants and stood naked on his knobby kneed stick legs. I made him wear my flip-flops, which were two times the size of his feet. Gracias, Sophie, he said, still wound up. See, you get to wear grown-up flip-flops in a grown-up shower now, I said. He stepped under the dribbling water and squeaked, Gold! He shivered and smiled and chattered his teeth, animated as a zany cartoon character. Goosebumps sprang up, and he looked like a little brownish-blue package of skin and bones. What if his grandmother thought he was too skinny, that we hadn't fed him well enough? What if she wouldn't let him come back with us? Sophie, Pablo said. His lips were the color of blueberries. Yeah, Principito? He spoke in Spanish. Why is the water so cold? I answered in English. I didn't want him forgetting all the English he'd learned. Maybe because we're in a poorer country, I said. It costs money to heat up water. Sophie? Yeah? Why are there peacocks on the blankets? Probably the blanket maker guy thought they looked nice. Maybe he always wanted a pet peacock. Sophie? With the kids I babysat, the question game drove me crazy, and I just zoned out and mumbled. I don't know. But with Pablo, it was a rare treat. Yeah, Pablito? Will my grandma know who I am? What? I stopped lathering the suds and stared. Of course. But I'm big now, and I used to be little. Grandmas don't forget what their grandkids look like, ever. I rubbed the shampoo into his hair. There was a knock at the door. It was Angel, wanting to come in and wash his hands. Hey, little man, he said to Pablo. You look purple. Angel? Si, senor. I'm not a senor. Sure you are. A little senor. Angel? You think my grandma will know who I am? Of course. But... If I, if I fix your hair like this, he reached over and smoothed Pablo's hair straight up into a foamy mohawk. Now she won't recognize you. She'll think you're a rock star. She'll be real happy a rock star is visiting her. Pablo giggled. I wanted to hug him right then, and it wouldn't have mattered if I got soap and cold water all over my clothes. I rinsed him off, and then Angel wrapped him up in a clean towel and carried him to the bed. See? You're like a burrito now. We dressed him in his pajamas, and then he wanted to be a burrito again, so we wound the peacock blanket around him. Sophie, he asked. Yeah? Can you read to me an angel? Angel smiled. Please. I picked out a few poems from my E.E. E. Cummings book. He was a poet who didn't like to use capitals or correct punctuation, and he tossed around parentheses like dashes of cinnamon and nutmeg. His poems didn't make much sense the first time I read them, but then later I'd noticed some of the lines flitting through my head, pieces of dreams. I figured that even if my brain didn't get the poem, some other part of me was soaking it up. Here is the deepest secret nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life which grows higher than soul can hope or mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart.
Pablo looked thoughtful, wrapped in the peacock blanket. He turned his head and said, Angel? Si, senor. What's in your box? It's... Oh, he stopped and laughed. You're sneaky. You almost had me. He grinned at me. Not telling. Pablo looked at me as though I could convince Angel somehow. I shrugged. Pablo motioned to me to come closer. I bent over, moved my face close to his. Sophie, he whispered loudly in my ear. You think his mom's heart's in the box? At first, I wrinkled up my nose, thinking of a real human heart, blood and vessels and muscles, slimy blue and red, pumping blood from nowhere to nowhere. And I realized it was a twist on the poem. I carry your heart in my heart. I glanced at Angel. Any trace of a smile had drained from his face. He got off the bed, took the box from his backpack, and wrapped it in two plastic bags. Then he carried it into the bathroom with him and closed the door. Soon the powder patter of shower spray started. Maybe you're right, Principito, I said. Maybe that's what's in the box.